It's historical time. Hey guys, Damo here. Just a heads up before the show, this one is gonna be a long one, so you might want to pop the kettle on. I've been getting a lot of feedback on the show, and I am truly grateful for all of you for all your feedback. Your validation means the world to me. I'm not even saying that ironically. It is a beautiful thing. I appreciate everything that you're saying and doing. That comes from the bottom of where my heart would be if I had one. Now, the feedback I'm getting is some of you want shorter shows that you can punch out in a lunch break. Others say that they want longer shows, more of a degustation. Well, the polls have come in and Team Longer is in the lead by a considerable margin. So, here you go. Enjoy the fruits of your labors. And if you were on Team Short Show, my condolences. But there is such a thing as a pause button, and I encourage you to use it if and when necessary. As yet, there isn't a make show go longer button, so you guys are going to have to do the heavy lifting on this one. Them's the breaks. All warfare is based on deception. The Art of War, Sun Tzu. Earlier in the week, I was approached by the Internet Police. They informed me, rather firmly, that operating a history program comes with certain legal responsibilities and obligations. It was pointed out to me that I have not yet done a show about World War II, and if you're doing history and you haven't done a show about World War II, this is highly criminal behavior. Well, mama didn't raise no dirty boy. So this one's all about World War II. It's about spies and espionage and cryptography, and how, sometimes, the correct use of Occam's razor can cost you the entire war. Occam's razor is something that can be wielded in many ways, but the most prevalent definition is this. The simplest explanation is most likely the correct one. However, the key words there are most likely, not is or definitely, most likely. Sometimes the more fantastical explanation, the more unlikely, the more utterly incomprehensible explanation is the correct one. And it is the application of Occam's razor that had as much, if not more, impact on the Nazis losing the Second World War than maybe anything else. But we're in media res here. Let's try and start at least somewhere near the beginning. If we take Sun Tzu at his word and accept that all warfare is based on deception, then spycraft and intelligence and counterintelligence is utterly crucial to the war effort. In World War II, there was a famous document. It was nicknamed the Trout Memo. And it was sent from the office of Admiral John Godfrey, who was the British Director of Naval Intelligence at the time. And it detailed plans to use deception and cunning to fool the enemy into doing what you wanted them to do, to sort of puppet master the entire war. And the Trout Memo compares wartime deception with fly fishing, and it read in part, quote, The trout fisher casts patiently all day. He frequently changes his venue and his lures. If he has frightened the fish, he gives the water a rest for half an hour or so. But his main endeavor, 
viz. to attract fish by something he sends out from his boat, is incessant. The enemy, like trout, may be fooled or lured in. And after that, one of the ways that you would indicate that an operation was successful was by saying that the bait was swallowed hook, line, and sinker. Now, if you think that this trout momo sounds particularly florid and prosaic, you may be onto something there. Because while it was issued by Admiral John Godfrey, the memo itself was actually written by his assistant, a man codenamed 17F, one Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming. In the Second World War, for the most part, the Allies were really, really good at spying, and the Axis were really, really bad. As with any rule, there are always exceptions. Uh, this is obviously not a blanket thing, but a rule of thumb that you can have is that the Allies were good, and the Germans were utter rubbish. One of the main reasons for this was something known as Enigma. Enigma was the German system of encoding their communications during World War II. It should be pretty obvious to everyone, but during a war, you don't want the other team to know what you're saying. That's bad for business. So you use what's called a cipher. You know that the other side are going to be able to intercept your messages. You can't stop that. So whether it's a telegram or a letter or you're sending anything over the radio, you can't stop the other side from intercepting them. So you make sure that only your people know what those messages say. And the German's main code, Enigma, was the most advanced cipher ever conceived by man. It was a truly remarkable feat of cryptographic engineering. It was incredible. And because it was so good, the Germans, they kind of clocked off. They got complacent. Because this code was so good that nobody would ever break it. The code was literally unbreakable. It was invincible. Yes, I am invincible. And what brought them unstuck was that the Allies, with a team featuring the great Alan Turing, among many others, they broke it. And how they broke Enigma is one of the most incredible feats ever. So first up, let's make sure everyone's on the same page regarding what a cipher is. A cipher is a way of obscuring messages by writing them in such a way that only the person that you want reading them knows how to read them. So it looks like incomprehensible gibberish to anyone that doesn't know how to translate it. Kind of like reading Welsh. Probably the oldest cipher on record is known as the Caesar cipher, which is yet another thing attributed to Julius Caesar. And the Caesar cipher was also known as the shift cipher. And it was accomplished by shifting the letters of the alphabet either forwards or backwards, and by a fixed number of places. I know it sounds complicated, but it's all going to come together. So if you had a shift cipher of three, then A would become D. So A, B, C, D. B would become E, C would become F, and so on. If you wanted to make it more complicated you could use numbers. So A equals 1, B equals 2. Or you can mix and match. You could have shift numbers. 
A equals 4. B becomes 5. Or you can get even crazier with your combinations. You could shift every second letter by four numbers and every third letter by five numbers. Or you could make Z the start of the alphabet. You can see how this gets more and more complicated and you can add layers and layers of complexity. Well, Enigma shows just how complicated a cipher can possibly get. The levels of complexity are astonishing. Now, why did the Germans have such a good cipher, I hear you ask? Well, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that because I have a prepared answer. The Germans developed such a powerful cipher because they'd been burned before. It all goes back to World War I. During the First World War, the United States was a neutral country until 1917. So while Europe was bombing itself back into the Stone Age, the US was sitting back and making a tidy profit from being on the sidelines, with President Woodrow Wilson planning on going down in the history books as the man who mediated the peace treaty to stop the biggest war of all time. It didn't quite pan out that way, and Woodrow Wilson instead became famous in history as the man who Bart Simpson impersonated when he catfished Mrs. Krabappel. You're not like the other men I've met. Yeah, I'm the 28th President of the United States. If you've ever wondered why the US was the lone economic and industrial juggernaut in the world for almost the entirety of the 20th century, it's because they came late to two world wars. It was the global political equivalent of being the last man in the Royal Rumble and then cold-clocking anyone left standing with a folding chair. But sure, yeah, USA, woo, freedom, independence, guns, woo! So during World War I, the Germans were worried that the United States would enter the war, and if they did, that they would enter on the side of the Entente. That was France, Great Britain, etc. I should note that this wasn't a certainty either. At the time, German was the second most spoken language in the United States. They could have gone either way. But the Germans themselves, they were worried about this new wrestler tagging into the ring, rested and fresh, and then just dominating everyone. So they hatched a plan, and this plan became known as the Zimmerman Telegram. And it is one of the biggest cock-ups in global history. It was a Campbell Graham level of dropping the ball on an international scale. Essentially, in 1917, the German Foreign Secretary, Arthur Zimmerman, Oh, Zimmerman, where you gonna run to? No, Zimmerman sent a telegram to the German embassy in Mexico. The ambassador in the German embassy would then pass this telegram on to the president of Mexico. And this telegram basically said, Hey Mexico, Germany here. Look, we don't want the United States entering the war. And we know that you guys, you're still sore about losing Texas. So, how about you guys declare war on the USA and then invade from the south, and we'll back you up, and then they won't be able to come to Europe, and everyone wins. Deal? Of course, Germany doesn't want the Americans to know about this plan. The United States is still neutral, and this is as big a cases belli as you're ever going to get. So the telegram was written in a cipher, the German's Diplomatic Code 3512, which was essentially just a more complicated version of a Caesar cipher. It was hard to crack, but not impossible. 
And because all telegrams ran through cables in the Atlantic Ocean, and Britain was in the Atlantic Ocean, the Brits intercepted the message. British intelligence cracked the code, they deciphered the message, and they passed it on to the Americans. They just, you know, hey, we found this telegram from the Germans, we thought you might be interested. Here, take a look. The USA was furious. Because it's the US that does the invading, not the other way around. And this was the reason the United States got into the war. President Wilson did his war to end all wars speech, and from that point on, World War I was essentially over. There was another year of fighting, of course, and millions more lives were lost, but that was pretty much where the game turned. And after the war, the Germans analyzed that game, and they decided they needed better codes. So they made one, and it was the mother of all codes. And it was such a puzzle that it became known as Enigma. Enigma. Edward. Edward Enigma. So you remember how I said about ciphers that you can add in layers of complexity that makes it even harder and harder to crack? Well, Enigma was a cipher that was so utterly complex that had so many potential solutions, of which only one was correct, that it would take billions of years to crack it. If you were to try and brute force Enigma, that is just taking a guess at what you think the code is and trying your luck, and you did that every single second, all day, every day, the universe has not existed long enough for you to have tried all the potential combinations yet. And, and this is a huge and, even on the off chance that someone did manage to decode it, the code was randomized to a new setting every single day. The Germans believed that the Enigma code was unbreakable, and while the Germans might have done some really dumb things in the Second World War, this wasn't one of them. They were right to put as much faith in Enigma as they did. It was that good. It wasn't exactly unbreakable. No code is unbreakable, but it was as close as you could ever possibly get. Cracking Enigma was statistically less likely than a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters coming up with the complete works of William Shakespeare. And Shakespeare just straight up invented words. So why was this Enigma code so powerful? Why was it considered impossible to crack? An Enigma machine is a work of art. It is a marvel of cryptographic engineering. It is genius in a box. Because Enigma wasn't just a code, it was alive. It was a living organism. It wasn't people just saying, all right, when we use A, what we actually mean is G. The way you got the Enigma code was through using an Enigma machine. Imagine a wooden briefcase, right? And inside this briefcase is something that looks like half typewriter and half steampunk laptop. It's got these chunky round keys, it's got cogs and plugs and cables and switches all over it. You open it up and on the bottom half of the unit is a keyboard where you can punch in the letters. And on the top half are all the letters of the alphabet which light up one letter at a time. And the keys are connected to the lights via an electrical circuit. So you press a key on the keyboard and a letter of the alphabet lights up. And that's how you get the code. 
So if you press A and then E lights up, for example, you change A to E. But how does A become E? This is where it gets wiggy-whack. Inside the Enigma machine are three different rotors, which scramble the circuit going from a letter on the keyboard to a letter lighting up. Each of these three rotors had 26 spokes, which was 26 possible starting positions. That's the first stage of encryption. Three rotors with 26 potential positions. That's just the first stage. Whenever you would push a key, the rotors would turn, which in turn changed the circuit. So Enigma wasn't just a code that you set from a crazy amount of potential codes. The code itself actually changed as you used it. You type a letter and the rotors tick over, which alters the code every time you type. So if you press A and E lights up, you could press A again and then maybe X would light up. And then hit A again and G would light up and so on. So if you were trying to decode this, if you were trying to crack this code, you couldn't just say, all right, I got it, A equals F. Because A only equaled F for that one particular keystroke. And then, just to make the hardest thing in history to crack even harder, the Germans added an extra layer of encryption. This was known as a stecker board or a plug board. At the bottom of the Enigma machine were a bunch of plugs, like headphone jacks. You know, the big, chunky 5.6mm headphone jacks, the old school ones that you put in a record player or something? It's like them. And there were 26 of these. And then you had 10 cables, and you'd plug these 10 cables into these jacks, which would further scramble the code. So to recap, you push the letter A, and the circuit goes through 10 cables from a possible 26 positions, through three rotors, each with another possible 26 positions, and then those rotors change with every keystroke, and then, finally, a letter lights up at the other end, and that's what you put in your code. That's how it's scrambled. So if you were in charge of operating an Enigma machine, at the start of every day, you'd have a protocol for which settings to put your Enigma machine on. So where you would put your code rotors... Uh, which place that you would put them on, where you put your plugboard cables. And you'd set all this up right, and that would enable your machine to encode and decode any messages for that day. These settings had to be handed out the old-fashioned way, so it was theoretically possible to get your hands on the settings, but we'll get to that later. So let's say you've got the day's Enigma settings. Every Enigma machine came with five potential rotors of which three would be selected for that day's code. Each rotor could be in any of the three slots. Each rotor had 26 numbers on it. So that day's settings might be, say, rotor 3, position 12, slot 1, rotor 5, position 7, slot 2, rotor 4, position 22, slot 3, or whatever, any combination of that. You see how complicated this is getting? Then you had the stecker board which would be 10 cables in the 26 plugs, which were labeled alphabetically. That's why there were 26 of them. So in addition to the rotors, you might be told, uh, plug F into N and T into W and so on 10 times. So adding all that up, this means that the number of potential combinations, 
if you were trying to decode the Enigma code, if you were trying to figure out what it was saying, and you were just having a random guess at cracking this code, the number of potential combinations is literally difficult for the human brain to comprehend. Let's try it. See if you can visualize this. The total number of potential combinations an Enigma machine could have on any given day was 158 quintillion 962 quadrillion 555 trillion 217 billion 826 million 360,000 possible settings. If you were going to round that number up and try and write it on a piece of paper, you would start with a 1, and then a 5, and then 19 zeros. If you're trying to conceptualize what 158 quintillion looks like in a physical sense, that's roughly how many stars there are. Not stars you can see at night, not stars in the Milky Way galaxy. I'm talking, that's how many stars are in the universe. Now, imagine this. What if you were told that it was your job to crack this code? What if you were told to decode Enigma? What if you were told that if you didn't crack it, tens of thousands of people were going to die? Maybe even people you knew, people you loved. How lucky do you feel? You just pick out three of the five code wheels, spin the 26 positions on each, plug in 10 cables, hope for the best. Do you get lucky? And if you tried a new combination every second, non-stop, since the Big Bang, you'd still be going. And, even if you somehow managed to win 400 billion lotteries at the same time, while being hit by lightning several thousand times, while watching the Cronulla Sharks win their 900th consecutive premiership, remember, that code is only valid for one day. And remember, if you're trying to crack this instead of just spinning the wheel and hoping for the best, Unlike any other cipher in history up until that point, the Enigma code changed as you used it. Just because you decoded a letter doesn't mean that you know one of the letters now. It just means that you know that one particular letter. You just found one individual character among millions. Every time you press a key, it turns the rotors. Every input changes the output. How do you even begin to crack an already impossible code when every time you try to crack it, the whole code changes? And here's the absolute craziest thing about the whole story. The Allies did it. I hope by now that I've impressed upon you just how freaking amazing that accomplishment was. They broke Enigma. It should be said, though, that the Allies went to considerable effort and expense to do this. It was a major effort. If you've seen that god-awful 2014 film, The Imitation Game, 
You'd think that Enigma was cracked by Doctor Strange and Bendit like Beckon in a chicken coop somewhere on a farm out in the upstate England. Dormammu, I've come to break Enigma. It was a huge effort. It wasn't just Benedict Cumberbatch and Kiera Knightley in a shed. Everything was run out of a place called Bletchley Park, and there was British intelligence, that's MI5, MI6, the government code and cipher school, which was the majority of Bletchley Park. Anyone crunching numbers that wasn't actually a James Bond type. They were all there. And keep in mind that when I say British, I'm actually talking about the entire Commonwealth. So that's the British Isles, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, India, and so on. So don't feel left out. They just come under the banner of Britain, and it's a lot easier to just truncate things that way. The Americans had the SIS, the Signals Intelligence Service, and crucially, there was the Polish Cypher Bureau. This was a whole gang of geniuses in exile who did about 90% of the heavy lifting when it came to actually cracking Enigma. And all of these groups came together under one banner. It was the Voltron of cryptography, and it was codenamed Ultra. Ultra Megaforce! Ultra because the work they were doing wasn't secret, and it wasn't top secret. It was ultra secret. They needed to come up with a new level of secret to not describe how secret what they weren't doing wasn't. A quick note here. Ultra wasn't just about cracking the Enigma code either. They were in the business of cracking all of the codes. Enigma was the big one, and the most crucial to the war effort in the long term, but that wasn't the only cipher going around. There was the Italian C-38 code, the Japanese purple cipher, hell, they were even cracking the Soviet codes, you know, just, just in case. And they also cracked the Lorenz cipher. I'll very briefly touch on Lorenz, because for the layman... What happened was essentially the same as Enigma, but this was actually even more impressive, and criminally, most people have never even heard of it. Enigma was an amazing code, but to use it, both people needed to have an Enigma machine, which was a big, chunky box. You had your Enigma box, you type your message into it, you write down the coded message that it spits out, and then you transmit that code. Secure, sure, but it's a pain in the ass to actually use it. Do you think people like Adolf Hitler and Josef Goebbels were going to be going around with an Enigma box and tapping out their code whenever they wanted to send out a tweet? Of course not. So they had something that automated that process. And that something was the Lorenz machine. Lorenz was a mechanical add-on that you'd put onto a teleprinter and it would automatically encode any messages that you sent out and decoded them on the way back in. It was sort of like an automatic Enigma machine. This was some really high-end tech back in the 40s, so there were only about 50 Lorenz machines in circulation. But that meant that they were only being used by the most important people sending the most top-secret communications. People like Hitler. And Ultra cracked it. The highest echelons of Nazi command might as well have just been broadcasting in the clear. And incredibly, unlike Enigma... Ultra didn't have a copy of the machine or the schematics or anything for the Lorenz. They cracked the code using pure mathematics, and then they built a working Lorenz machine based entirely off the math they used to decode the messages, without ever actually seeing one. That's like seeing the code for a TikTok video and then using that to build your own iPhone. 
It needs to be said that Ultra wasn't starting from scratch here. This had been a team effort for a long time. Believe it or not, the Enigma code itself had actually been cracked before. The Enigma machine had been around in various forms for quite a while now, at least a decade, and this piqued the interest of Poland, who were a tad suspicious of Germany's foreign policy. In the early 1930s, the Polish Cypher Bureau had hired a hit team of mathematicians to begin working on this crazy new German code system, and they teamed up with the French, who were also suspicious of Hitler, and they sent a spy into Germany to steal the schematics of an Enigma machine. So the Polish had been working on Enigma for years, and they'd gotten pretty good at it. You know, if not good at cracking it, then at least narrowing it down. They had cracked some of the Enigma settings in the past, but this was after weeks or even months of hacking away at the same code. Before the war, the Germans wouldn't change the settings every day, they'd only change them every few months or so, so the Polish had enough time to sort of work on the problem. It was only when the war started that they changed it to every day, and this was just way too fast for anyone in Poland to be able to crack it to be of any use in the war. But they did have the groundwork in place, and this is where Ultra comes in. Using the groundwork done by the Polish, and the combined efforts of some of the sharpest minds in the Anglosphere, they found a weakness in Enigma. Enigma, while incredibly, astonishingly good, wasn't perfect. It was almost invincible. But like Achilles and his heel, boulder and mistletoe, green lantern and the colour yellow, there was a weakness. An Enigma machine was used both for encoding a message and for decoding a message. Plain text was turned into code, and code was turned into plain text on the same box. This was for ease of use, obviously. Having two machines would be a logistical nightmare, but it turned out to be crucial in attempting to crack it. It meant that each letter was exchanged for another letter. No letter could ever become itself. So typing A could give you X or G or L, a would never become A. A letter never becomes itself. And this is how you crack the Enigma code. So you can eliminate one potential letter, so what? It might not seem like much, but 4% of 158 quintillion is a lot. But it isn't just one letter. You can use context to help you figure out what a message is probably saying. So if you intercepted a message from, say, a German panzer division, panzer being the German word for tank, at some point in their message, they're probably going to use the word panzer, right? And if you know that no letter can ever become itself, you can eliminate any six-letter chunk, what cryptographers call a crib, where any letters match up. So if you have the word panzer and you put it next to the scrambled letters of the code, if any of those letters match up, if P for Panzer matches with a P in the coded message, then you know that it's wrong and you move along. Uh, this is known as a logic bomb, and it was initially developed by the Polish, specifically the very brilliant mathematician Marian Ryuski, and it was then further refined by the Ultra teams at Bletchley Park, where the principle of the bomb was turned into a machine. Alan Turing is credited with coming up with the machine that automated this process. This was known as the bomb. That's 
B-O-M-B-E with an E on the end in honour of the Polish spelling. And the idea of the bomb wasn't to crack Enigma. It was a way of very quickly ruling out any combinations that were obviously incorrect. The rest was still checked by hand, but the bomb took a few hundred sextillion combinations and then narrowed that down to a few thousand. That's still a lot, but at least this is actually manageable. Another quick aside here. The bomb wasn't the first computer. That's one of those things in history that gets distorted with every retelling. The first machine that we'd actually consider a working computer was Colossus, which was designed by Tommy Flowers. It was heavily influenced by Turing's bomb, and Turing came up with most of the programming that it used. But Alan Turing didn't Tony Stark it. It was built by Tommy Flowers. Alright, so you can take a guess at some of the words and maybe get a crib. But it's still a guess. You know that a message was intercepted in, say, the Ardennes, where there was a German panzer division. But you're just assuming that one of the words is going to be panzer. You don't know for sure. It could be anything. You're just taking a guess. What would really help would be some code where you were absolutely sure of what was being said. It was still coded. You didn't know what it was, but you knew for certain what that code meant. But how would you know exactly what a coded message was saying? Doesn't that defeat the purpose of a code? Well, what if, and let's just play with the imagination here, what if the leader of the enemy nation was a crazy hobo with a god complex who somehow struck it big? A megalomaniac who was a, who was a bit stupid. And what if he insisted that every message signed off with a salute in his name? That could help. So let's say you get the coded dispatches for the day. They're all in this nonsensical gibberish, just a random collection of letters like kafefe. You don't even know where one transmission ends and the next one begins. But if you look at them enough, a pattern begins to emerge. You see a trend. Most of the messages have the same 10-letter string in them. There's 10 letters, always the same, keep popping up everywhere. And it strikes you as familiar somehow. Then you take a look at the stuff that isn't in the Enigma code. Things like civilian radio broadcasts and newspapers and government announcements. These all end with the same 10 letters too. And if you're a code breaker working for Ultra at Bletchley Park... You look at this and you think to yourself, maybe this crazy person with the god complex is dumb enough to insist that everyone finish every transmission with the words Heil Hitler. Well, that just made things a lot easier. What other transmissions might be sent that we already know what they're saying? Well, once again, we're going to Egypt. One of the major theatres of the Second World War was in Egypt. In Egypt, among all of the amazing things like pyramids and sphinxes and Rami Malek, there is a natural landmark known as the Katara Depression. The Katara Depression is one of the most inhospitable places on Earth. As you all know, except for alongside the Nile, Egypt is a whole lot of desert. And wherever there isn't desert, there are rocks and cliffs and salt lakes and what is known locally as fekfek, 
which is a very fine powdered sand. It's like regular sand, but even harder to walk through and impossible to drive on. It's basically Anakin Skywalker's worst nightmare. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. The Katara Depression had all of this. If you were to try and think of your top 10 worst places on Earth, Katara ranks right up there. It has nothing going for it. Now, Egypt was the location of some pretty important tank battles in World War II, like the Second Battle of El Alamein. The thing with tank battles is that the tanks generally need to be able to get to the place where the battle is happening. They can't drive up cliffs, they can't drive in powdered sand, they can't drive on crumbling rocks. So this meant that they can't drive through the Katara Depression. And that goes for both sides, Axis and Allied. So the Katara Depression became the boundary of where a possible battle could take place. Outside of this area, both sides put up so many defenses that the entire region became known as the Devil's Garden. In fact, you still can't go there today because there are still so many unexploded mines there. But the Katara Depression itself was so inhospitable that it was considered to be a natural barrier. I mean, why would anyone go there? You'll just get stuck and die. You can't move tanks through there. You can't march troops through there. It's just dead. Nonetheless, it pays to be careful. So the Germans put an observation post in the Katara Depression just to be sure. It was just a guy in a hut watching over the deadest place in the entire world. Just in case the Allies had stolen a Jawa sand crawler and had to go to the Toshi station to pick up some power converters. The sand people are easily startled, but they'll soon be back, and in greater numbers. But this isn't Tatooine, it's Egypt. The Allies didn't try to get through the Katara Depression, and the German observation post never had to do anything. All they had to do was send a daily update back to headquarters. And every day, the update said the exact same thing. Nothing to report. Every day. Nothing to report. Fifteen characters in Morse code at the same time. Every day. Nothing to report. Nothing to report. Nothing to report. Same time. Every day. The thing is... Like all military communications, this transmission was always sent in the Enigma code. Nothing to report. Fifteen characters in that day's Enigma code. Fifteen characters. Nine unique letters that the Ultra team didn't have to crack because they already knew what it was going to say. And this dropped computational time dramatically. Having a 15-character head start made all the difference. And that outpost in the Katara Depression, it was never attacked. Because you wanted to make sure that the poor bastards stationed in that listening post kept having nothing to report. And so it went that all the codes were cracked. From those scraps and a few super geniuses that they had lying around, the Allies were able to crack every type of communication in the war. 
Ultra was so good at what they did that in the later stages of the war, they had figured out how to read every transmission broadcast anywhere. Regardless of what code was used to try and hide it, nothing the Axis did was secret. And this is where the fun begins. Because cracking the Enigma code is just the start of things. What happens next is the real story. It's at this point that Occam's Razor comes back into the tale. Knowing where the Germans were and what they were planning at all times had something of an advantageous effect for the Allied forces. It's kind of like a chess game where you have a sheet telling you what moves your opponent is planning on making. The Wehrmacht and the Kriegsmarine, which had looked invincible in 1939 and 1940, in 1942 they were on the ropes. The Eastern Front against the Soviets had devolved into the most horrible conflict in the history of mankind, and the other allies had successfully invaded North Africa, and the U-boats, sorry, for anyone that isn't a war buff, a U-boat is a truncation of Unterseeboot, the German word for submarine. The U-boats that had terrorized the Atlantic for years were now being picked off on the reg. The game had changed. And it's impossible to overstate how significant the whole U-boat thing was. The Allied war effort had an enormous reliance on supplies which were shipped across the Atlantic from America to Britain and then on to Europe. We're talking guns, ammunition, fuel, even things like potatoes had to be shipped. Europe was on fire, they didn't have enough stuff on their own to keep fighting, so supplies came in from the rest of the world. The problem with this was that the Germans had a super awesome submarine fleet. They had the biggest and the best submarines going around. And these U-boats would be all over the ocean. You never knew where they were going to be. And they would just pick off merchant ships as they tried to make the crossing. It was like Predator. They were beyond lethal. You're ghosting us, motherfucker. I don't care who you are back in the world. You give up position one more time, I'll bleed you. Real quiet. Live here. Got that. It's a common school of thought that if the Nazis had devoted a fraction of the resources they spent on the Holocaust and instead put it into making more U-boats, they would have comfortably won the war. Winston Churchill is on record as saying that the only thing that truly scared him was U-boats. England was in legitimate danger of being starved out of the war. U-boats sank 3,500 merchant ships through the war. The U-boats, they were the boogeyman. They were silent, they were invisible, they were deadly, they could be literally anywhere. There were cases of ships being sunk by U-boats within the sight of the Manhattan skyline. So a U-boat would sink a merchant ship and you'd be able to see the Statue of Liberty. He's killing us one at a time. The Allies sent their convoys out knowing that not everyone would make it there and back again. That was just the reality of it. There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. You had no idea where these submarines were. You just knew that they were out there somewhere. Because you could hear them. U-boats were in constant radio communication with HQ back in Berlin. Command needed to know where their submarines were, so they'd post regular updates, at least daily, saying where they were and what they were doing. These updates were, of course, in the Enigma code. 
so there's no chance of them getting caught, right? Nobody can crack the Enigma code. And a U-boat wasn't underwater the whole time, that's a misconception. This was pre-nuclear. These things ran on batteries when they were submerged and petrol when they weren't. You can't run a petrol motor underwater, everyone's going to choke to death on the fumes. So most of the time, the U-boats were just chilling out on the surface like regular ships. And this was actually pretty safe for them. Even if they were spotted, by the time a warship got them targeted or a plane set up on a bombing rung, these things had gone underwater and they were, they were gone, you couldn't find them anymore. And then, suddenly, one day, the U-boats started to get taken out. Hard. Suddenly there were subs dropping to the bottom of the sea like Michael J. Fox at a cruise ship sandwich bar. This is, uh, this is heavy duty. They didn't have time to dive. I ain't got time to bleed. Allied forces were coming in pre-sighted and weapons free. Almost as if they knew where the U-boats were going to be. And at the same time, the Germans were losing in North Africa. Almost as if the Allies knew exactly where the German weak points were. Also at the same time, German convoys were being picked off. Aircraft were being shot down. Buildings were sabotaged. Soup was being spat in. It's as if the other side knew exactly when and where the soup was being served. And how? How could this be happening? Everything had been going so well. How did it all start falling apart? What is the most logical conclusion? And that's where our boy William of Ockham and his famous manscaping tool come back in. Because it was starting to look like the Allies had cracked the Enigma Code. But that was impossible. The Enigma Code was literally unbreakable. So once you rule out the impossible, whatever is left, however unlikely, is the correct answer. I mean, that's how logic works, right? The odds of the Allies managing to randomly stumble upon three separate U-boats in the middle of the Atlantic, each of them a needle in a pile of haystacks, and on the same day they coincidentally move all of their troops and supplies out of a base just hours before a Luftwaffe bombing raid, and then somehow managed to have troops rallying at a place that a secret German attack was going to happen all on the same day, the odds of all of that happening are truly astronomical. I mean, what are they? One in a million? One in a billion? One in a trillion? Even if the odds of that happening are one in a trillion, and that happens every day, that is still statistically more likely than the Enigma Code being cracked. The Enigma Code was 1 in sextillion. A 1 followed by 21 zeros. So of course it had to be something else. I mean, planning around the Allies having cracked the Enigma Code was ridiculous. That would have been like planning around the Allies having a bunch of Jedi who could actually see the future. It's impossible. Don't even think about it. There has to be a more reasonable explanation. He can see things before they happen. That's why he appears to have such quick reflexes. It's a Jedi trick. Even if the Allies somehow got their hands on an intact Enigma machine, which the Germans considered unlikely, but it did happen, then it was still useless to them. They'd need to know the settings for that day. And even if they acquired an Enigma machine, unlikely, and if they got hold of the settings, even more unlikely, I mean, the Germans even made these settings sheets soluble so that they dissolved in water just in case the ship sank and maybe the, the codes got washed up on the shore a week later. Even if they got all of this, 
then they'd still only be able to translate the codes for a couple of days at the most. Either the list of settings would expire, and then they'd have to somehow steal the new one, or the Germans would realize that the code was compromised and change the settings anyway, so the code would have been defunct. It was, simply, inconceivable that this code was cracked. If you were in German high command, you were essentially presented with two choices. A, that Enigma had been cracked permanently and was now useless, or B, Winston Churchill is actually a powerful wizard with a crystal ball who can see through space and time and summon magical tornadoes to kill submarines. And you'd look at this and you'd go, well, a man that size who drinks and smokes as much as he does should have died of heart failure years ago. I'm going to go with Winston Churchill being an actual wizard. Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. That was the simplest explanation but it was also incorrect. And this cost the Germans in other ways, too. In one case, the Germans had invented a new radar system for the U-boats, which was known as METOX, and it was introduced by total coincidence when all of their U-boats just suddenly started visiting Davy Jones. It was kind of like an active radar that could tell you if someone was looking for you on radar, so it was an anti-radar radar. So a U-boat crew could use this to tell if there was anyone around using a radar to look for a U-boat. And if they found a signal, they could very casually pack up their things and dive underwater before anything even came close to them. And here's the thing. Metox was actually really good. It made U-boats impossible to spot on radar. It meant that Allied search planes looking for U-boats couldn't even get near one. But, like I said, coincidentally, Metox came in just as Enigma was cracked. And the Germans, they put two and two together, and they went, well, obviously Enigma can't be cracked, so what's happening here is that the Allies have somehow found a way to detect our new Metox systems. Alright, everybody stop using Metox, it's leading them right to us. And so they stopped using Metox, and... The submarine losses kept happening, and of course the Germans attributed that to the fact that they weren't using Metox anymore. It's the circle of life. This wasn't just confined to the European theatre either. Cracking the Japanese purple cipher had a similar effect. Uh, when, I, when I say Japanese purple cipher, what I mean was that the code was named purple. It, it wasn't actually the color. There were two major naval battles in the Pacific that changed the entire course of the war against the Japanese. A game of chess against our old adversary, the American Navy. There was the Battle of Coral Sea, which was the first time the Japanese had ever effectively been repelled. And then a couple of weeks later, there was the Battle of Midway, which was the first decisive defeat of the Japanese Navy. Midway is regarded as the turning point in the war in the Pacific, and it is one of the most complex battles in history. I mean, as in all of history. So I'm going to be going into no depth here at all. Just suffice it to say that the Americans won, and they won hard. One of the primary reasons that the Americans won at Midway was because they had decrypted the Japanese codes. The Americans knew where the Japanese fleet was going to be, 
when it was going to get there, how many ships, how many planes they had. They just they, they knew everything about these fleets because they'd read the Japanese communications. They were able to effectively ambush the Japanese fleet. This was a very, 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 very rare thing. Back before there were satellites and drones and long-range aircraft, actually finding an enemy fleet was an incredibly difficult task. It was as rare as hen's teeth. Ambushing an enemy fleet was practically unheard of. Any ocean is a big place, and this was in the Pacific. The Pacific Ocean is most of the planet. There are places in the Pacific Ocean where if you went through the center of the Earth and came out the other side, you would still be in the Pacific Ocean. Try finding some ships in that. Go on, I'll wait. To put it in perspective, the Battle of Midway was only the second naval battle ever in the history of mankind that had ever been fought out of sight of land. All of the famous naval battles in history before this, Salamis, Trafalgar, Tsushima, Jutland, none of them were in an ocean. That's how hard it is to find a fleet. The first naval battle that ever took place out of sight of land was the Battle of Coral Sea, May 4th, 1942, Star Wars Day. This is the way. If you can read the messages and you know where a fleet is going to be, you can create history. That is how powerful cracking the code is. Of course, cracking all of these codes was only half the battle. Once you've cracked them, you need to keep that on the down low. You can't have the other side learning about that. There was an absolutely massive allied effort to keep the fact that they'd broken the Enigma cipher a secret. This was their number one priority, keeping this thing under wraps. Because as of this point in the war, the Allies were playing with the Konami code on. They were basically cheating. And if the Germans found out, it was game over. That's the core of all cryptography, not letting the other team know that you can decode it. Because if they find that out, then they stop using it and they move on to something that you haven't cracked yet. Your edge only exists as long as the other side doesn't know that you have it. Cracking Enigma presented a very unique and very disturbing moral quandary. Try and place yourself in this situation. You have access to all the German communications. You know where everything is, where everything is going to be. You know where the Germans are planning to attack, and you know when they're going to attack it. And because they're your allies and your countrymen and your friends and your family, you know who is going to be attacked. Now here comes the tricky question. Who are you willing to sacrifice to preserve the secret? Because every time you act on the intelligence you've received from Enigma, every time you thwart an attack or you move something out of the way, you run the risk of giving up the game. So now you have to choose who lives and who dies. Every single decision you make using intelligence you've gathered through Enigma means that you have to calculate whether these ships, these bases, these cities, these people, people you might know, are they worth potentially losing the war for? I don't know who can make that decision, and yet it had to be made. 
there's a theory, and I stress that this is just a theory. It has been very strongly refuted by everyone involved, but then they would, wouldn't they? But there's a theory that keeping the Enigma secret was so important to the Allies that Winston Churchill knew of an intense upcoming bombing raid on Coventry, and he decided to do nothing about it. Ultra provided the intelligence of the Coventry raid, and Churchill deemed that Coventry wasn't worth blowing Ultra's cover, as in the city was not worth it. It seems harsh, but war requires hard decisions. You can debate the merits of this amongst yourselves, but keep in mind that during World War II, there was also a plan to actually give Queensland to the Japanese. It never worked out, and I'm still not sure we got the better of that exchange. There is an alternate reality where Japanese Pauline Hansen is complaining about round-eyed whiteys taking everyone's jobs. Please explain. So, you've cracked the code, you've got the intel, you know exactly where every U-boat is. Now, you need to make it look like you don't know where they are. One solution to this is to send planes out on recon flights where you know that there's going to be a U-boat. So you get the intelligence that says there's a U-boat over here, and then you send a a scout plane out, and oh look, we got lucky, we spotted a U-boat on the surface, what are the odds? Oh, look, and we've got a fleet nearby that can go and blow it up. Or there's some bombers over there that happen to be right next door. That's a handy coincidence. How long before the coincidences start piling up? How many times can you do this and not raise suspicion? I mean, how long before the crews of your own plane start to wonder why they're so lucky spotting a submarine every time they go out? So you need to send out planes on missions where you know that there are absolutely no U-boats. You have to send planes on missions that are utterly useless, where they will find nothing. And there were mathematicians as part of the war staff whose job it was to determine just how many supposedly quote-unquote random encounters could be chalked up to luck, and how many dummy flights that you had to send out to make it look like it was just a crapshoot. And even then, it can still be a crapshoot. I read one story where Ultra had found a German merchant convoy that was relatively undefended. It was a prime target, but the eggheads at Ultra decided that attacking this convoy was too risky. It seemed like it might be the Germans trying to bait the Allies, you know, testing to see if the codes were compromised. So it was decided that this particular convoy was going to be left alone. It wasn't worth risking. And then, by total chance, an Allied bomber squadron had gotten lost and flown off course, and they flew right into this suspiciously undefended convoy. And bomber pilots being bomber pilots, they blew it up. Hey, what about Major Kong? Luckily, it wasn't a test. It was just a run-of-the-mill convoy. But I love that story, because... While Ultra was this spider's web of four-dimensional chess, there is nothing in the universe that beats the power of sheer dumb luck. Of course, it wasn't all like that. The Allies went to extraordinary lengths to conceal their Enigma information. 
Generally speaking, Enigma information wasn't acted on at all unless there was a cover story already in place to explain how the Allies managed to find this. So you always made sure that you had plausible deniability. Planes were handy, of course. You just have planes out there flying. Oh, look, we found some Germans. Go blow them up. Or you could have one of your double agents spin a tail. Uh, On one occasion, there was an attack that absolutely needed to be made, but there was no way to reasonably get spotters in place to tag the enemy. So what Ultra decided to do was they would take one of their own codes, it was an older code, that they knew that the Germans had cracked. It's an older code, sir, but it checks out. I was about to clear them. And they used this old code to send a message to a spy congratulating him on this amazing catch in finding these German forces. The Germans intercepted this message, and then they decoded it, and then they went, oh, there's a spy, we better catch this spy. And they spent resources trying to catch a spy that never actually existed. But sometimes you could get even more abstract. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Nazis were pretty racist. And it turns out that racism can be predictable. And if you're trying to fool a racist, it can be useful. you got to remember that the Axis wasn't just Germany. It was an Axis. It was Germany, Italy, Japan, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, and Bulgaria. And when these nations were working together, you had a handy cover for your Enigma decrypts. A combined German-Italian battle group that was supposed to be secret could be bombed out of existence, and the Germans would say, oh, what's more likely, that our unbreakable code has been broken? Or, possibly, could it be those dirty, filthy Italians? Yes, of course it's them. No idea about security and covert operations, these Italians. They must have leaked the plans. They might even be double-crossing us right now. Wine-drinking cheese-eaters, the lot of them. They're practically French. And this really points out the crux of the whole issue. Because it turns out that Nazis, on average, were pretty damn stupid. Because all through the entire war, Allied intelligence was for the most part, really good. And German intelligence was, for the most part, really bad. All the Allied spies were essentially James Bond. I mean, they literally had Ian Fleming working for them. And all the German spies were Colonel Klink. I mean, if anything, Hogan's heroes underplayed the whole thing. That is absurd and ridiculous. It is totally and completely impossible. To put this disparity in perspective, there were no German spies in England. None. Zero. Null. Conversely, there were so many spies in various German units that spies could sometimes accidentally spy on other spies. The Russians were even better. They had spies in high-ranking positions inside the British spy agencies. Most notably were the Cambridge Five. They were five high-ranking British officials who were found later to be Soviet agents. And by later, I mean they were originally the Cambridge Two, and then eventually a third was found, and then later a fourth, and finally it became a quintet when the last of the group was discovered. In 1991, the Soviets were very good. Still are. There were no German spies in England. 
The Germans thought they had heaps of spies over there, but... Well, I'll get to that. The story is just too good. As I said, there were no German spies operating in Britain. Every German spy had either been identified and either liquidated, or, far more commonly, turned into a double agent. It's not really much of a choice. All up, 13 spies were executed by the British during the war. Nearly three times that number were turned. Alright, I realise here that execution sounds pretty harsh, especially to our modern sensibilities, and maybe it is. But war in general, and particularly World War II, had a lot of rules that might seem weird when you actually think about them. It's kind of this weird mix of chivalry and brutality. There were things like you wouldn't kill a guy while he was sleeping. Like if you came across a sleeping enemy soldier, you wouldn't straight up kill him. That was considered to be very rude. But what you would do would be to point your gun at him, kick him a couple of times to wake him up, and then shoot him. And that was considered downright decent. One of the cardinal rules of war was that spying was a capital offense. No ifs, no buts, straight up execution. If you were a spy, you were killed. Spying was seen as a sort of a dirty thing back then. I mean, real men fought face to face with honor and dignity and all that jazz. If you dressed up in disguise and put poison in someone's drink, then you were a filthy degenerate and deserved to be hung. Like I said, it was weird. I mean, there's a few stories about L Company, the group that would eventually become the SAS. Uh, They would parachute in behind enemy lines and infiltrate these enemy cities, and they would attempt to perform covert operations in these German cities in full British uniform. Because if you were wearing a British uniform in a German or Italian-occupied city, then you couldn't possibly be a spy, and you wouldn't be summarily executed if you were caught. And that was a rule that even the Nazis followed, I I don't understand it, I'm just trying to give you context. Espionage was seen as so uncouth that the British made a unit specifically for spying so that regular soldiers wouldn't have to stoop to such shenanigans. This unit was unofficially dubbed the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Interestingly enough, one of the first members of this unit, the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, was Sir Christopher Lee. He would later go on to star in a James Bond film. He was Francesco Scaramanga, the man with the golden gun. He was Saruman in Lord of the Rings and Count Dooku in Star Wars. There's a rather famous story about Lee filming a scene in Return of the King where Saruman gets stabbed in the back. And director Peter Jackson is trying to tell Christopher Lee how he wants this scene to play out. And Christopher Lee disagrees and he says to Peter Jackson that he knows exactly what a man sounds like when he gets stabbed in the back. We have only to remove those who oppose us. So, back to the story. Germany didn't have any spies in England. But they thought they did. Most of the people they sent over switched sides. And sometimes, these double agents recruited more quote-unquote spies to increase the spy network over there and each of these spies was still on the German payroll. The Germans paid their wages for the entire war. They were paying for a spy network that was actively working against them. Like I said, the Russians were also on a similar level. 
The Reds were probably the best spies in the war and for a long time afterwards, but they didn't always play nice with the other allied teams. The only reason I'm focusing on the Anglo-American side of things is because of Ultra, but the Soviets were just on another level entirely. One of the things that everyone knows, right, is that World War II officially kicked off when Germany invaded Poland. What might not be such common knowledge is that the Soviet Union also invaded Poland at the same time in a cooperation attack with Germany. This was in 1939. Germany and Russia weren't fighting until the German surprise attack on Russia in June 1941. Like I said, the Russians didn't always play nice. In the first week of December 1941, in the middle of this German surprise attack on the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin ordered a large number of his forces, including his absolute top men, his crack Siberian troops. They were stationed on the Manchurian border, and Stalin ordered them back onto Russia's Western Front to combat the Germans. So why not use these troops for the entirety of the war? Well, it's because Stalin was worried about Japan. He kept his best army on the border just in case Japan was planning an invasion. But in the first week of December, his spies told him that Japan had no immediate plans to invade Russia from the south, and instead they were going to attack American bases in the Pacific. So Stalin withdrew his troops, and on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor happened. What's that? Why didn't they warn the Americans? Oh, you sweet summer child. America hadn't entered the war yet. The American people were very strongly opposed to entering another world war. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt even campaigned on it. They might have needed a little push. And again, let's make it clear, America were no certainties to actually enter the war. Less than six weeks before Pearl Harbor, Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator who was the first person to make a non-stop flight from New York to Paris and was an American icon, still is an American icon. On October 30th, 1941, Lindbergh hosted a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden and filled the joint. So no, the US were never going to enter the war because of an overwhelming sense of civic duty. I urge all of you to check out Lindy's speech at this rally if you ever get the chance. It is so overwhelmingly racist to so many different ethnicities that even Hitler had to tip his hat. He even suggests that what he calls quote-unquote yellow people were genetically incapable of building an aircraft that could worry any US forces in the Pacific. History is the slow realization that everyone you were told to admire is actually a monster. But anyway, back to the war and back to the espionage. The Allies were good at it and the Germans were rubbish. How do we know that the Germans were rubbish? Because after cracking the Enigma and Lorenz codes, we were essentially reading their diaries. And it does not paint a pretty picture. The German intelligence service was known as the Abwehr. The head of the Abwehr was a guy by the name of Wilhelm Canaris, who had no idea that the mistress he was having an affair with was a Polish spy. Canaris would later be executed for trying to kill Hitler. The second in command of the Abwehr was Paul Thommel, who was actively a double agent working for the Allies. And that was their leadership. German intelligence got worse from there. 
one of their methods for recruiting spies was to go to the prisoner of war camps and tell the prisoners there, hey, how about we make a deal? We'll send you back home to your own country, but when you get there, you have to promise us that you'll spy for us and keep regular contact. There is sufficient historical evidence to suggest that the Germans actually believed that this would work. It went about as well as you'd expect. Pliviet, Berlin. This is uh, Special Agent Ivan here. I I have located the, the secret documents you were looking for. <laughs> they are in your butt. You <laughs> found them in your butt. Das <laughs> Click. There are multiple examples of Russians just rocking up to the German lines, surrendering, and then offering to work for the Germans as translators and radio operators. And it never occurred to the Germans to check to see if what these Russians were translating was actually what was being said. They were even worse in Britain. One of their spies in Britain was a man named Alphonse Timmerman. No, Timmerman. He arrived in Glasgow in 1941 and he was arrested almost as soon as his ship docked. Apparently, Timmerman wasn't the international man of mystery that the Germans were hoping for. Wait a check! He wasn't helped by the fact that Ultra had intercepted messages saying that a spy was going to be coming in on the ship that Timmerman was traveling on, sure, but he didn't do himself any favors either. Uh, He started off by asking for his wages to be sent to an address in Germany. And then there was the fact that when he went through a routine search at customs, in his luggage he had a container of invisible ink. And the ingredients to make more invisible ink and a sheet of paper with instructions on how to copy documents using invisible ink. Somebody's playing a prank on me! Alphonse Timmerman was taken away, imprisoned, and hung. Oh my god! But that's not where his story ends. MI5 came up with an idea to use Timmerman as a sort of ruse to trick the Abwehr. They knew from Ultra that the Germans didn't know that this guy had been caught, So they came up with an idea. MI5 would pretend to be Alphonse Timmerman, codenamed Scruffy, but they'd do kind of a shitty job of it. So the reports that they'd send back to Berlin would contain just little mistakes and inconsistencies. Just small things like a slip of the tongue, dollar instead of pound, tube instead of train station, that kind of thing. You know the scene in Inglorious Bastards where the team is compromised because Fassbender uses the wrong finger gesture? They were essentially going to do that, but deliberately. Ooh, that's a bingo. (laughs) Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo? You just say bingo. The idea was that the Germans would pick up on these slip-ups from their spy, and then they'd conclude that he'd been captured, and it was actually MI5 that were sending the messages trying to trick the Germans. And then the Germans would go, Aha! They think they can fool us. But look, he's using yards instead of meters. This is obviously a British deception. All these Tommies, they think they are hot, when in fact, they are not. Bingo! How fun! And then the Germans, having seen through the ruse, would conclude that MI5 were 
a bit shite at spying, and this might make them underestimate British intelligence in the future. Only, the plan didn't work. The Germans never picked up on the little hints that the British left, and they continued to believe that Alphonse Timmerman, aka Agent Scruffy, was a highly accomplished spy in the heartland of England instead of swinging from an awning at the Old Bailey. They'd get all these reports back with these little Anglophile expressions, and they'd go, Oh, this guy is good. He is starting to get the lingo. He's really cooking now. And it was at this point that Allied intelligence began to believe that the Abwehr were perhaps not the opponents they'd originally imagined. And of course, there was the famous Operation Pastorius. This was where a bunch of German spies were supposed to infiltrate the United States and blow up strategic infrastructure. Power plants, bridges, railroad stations, etc. It's famous because it was a total shit show. For one thing, it was launched in 1942, after Enigma had been cracked, so everyone knew about it. Then there was the fact that it was codenamed Operation Pistorius, after Francis Pistorius, the guy who founded Germantown in Philadelphia. This is kind of like Al-Qaeda codenaming their 9-11 attack, Operation That Simpsons episode where Homer goes to New York. And that's when the chuds came at me. Operation Pistorius was doomed from the start, but the Germans did not help things at all. Before they even left Europe, one of the team got drunk in a bar in Paris and tried to hit on women by telling them that he was a spy on a top-secret mission to the United States. The team leader left a briefcase with the plans for the operation in it on a train. As soon as they hit the beaches in America at night, they ran into the only Coast Guard agent for miles around. They decided to bribe the Coast Guard agent. This Coast Guard agent said, yeah, sure, I'll keep your secret, and then as soon as the Germans were out of sight, reported it. And then the whole thing crashed and fell apart because one of the guys in the team was actually someone that hated the Nazis and betrayed everyone else. Honestly, the Abwehr would have done better if they just recruited Charles Lindbergh. But what about counterintelligence? They were rubbish overseas, but how was their home game? Well, somehow, they managed to be even worse. Even when the Germans actually did find spies operating in Germany... They would often send a letter out to the spy saying, We have reason to believe that you're a spy. Can you please come to Berlin for a chat? There were surprisingly few takers. And here's my absolute favorite story that perfectly illustrates how bad the German spies were. Early in the morning of Tuesday, September 3rd, 1940, a group of four German spies made landfall off the coast of Kent in England. Their mission was to reconnoitre England's south coast for a potential invasion by the Wehrmacht. So a short time after they landed, about 9am, the leader of this group, a Dutch-born Nazi party member by the name of Karl Meyer, strolled into the nearby town of Lid to commence his mission. And what he did was he walked into the first pub he came across, sat down at the bar, and ordered a bottle of cider. By mid-afternoon, the entire team had been apprehended by the bill. Spying is a tricky game. The idea is to blend in. Walking into a pub at 9am, not realising that it was against the law to sell alcohol in the morning, 
not attempting a local accent, and, of all things, not ordering a bloody beer, that's a great way to get caught. This is kind of like if it happened today, a German spy walking into a pub in an eastern suburb's rooster's jersey. He'd be nabbed right away. I mean, to a hostile foreign power, it might seem that appearing to support a team that has won back-to-back premierships would be a safe choice, but any native is going to say, hang on, there's no such thing as a Roosters fan. Get him! These four spies were supposed to embed themselves in England, and from there build up an underground network of operatives to feed intelligence back to Berlin for the rest of the war. They lasted less than 12 hours. Which brings us to one of the most influential figures of World War II. If you were looking for a person who single-handedly changed the war, this guy would be in your top ten. Churchill, Truman, Turing, Einstein, Oppenhauer, Zhukov, Montgomery, Patton, whoever you're putting in your list, this guy deserves to be on there. And I can guarantee that almost all of you have never heard of him. His name was Juan Puyol Garcia, and he was actually from a neutral country. He was Spanish. While soldiers of both sides of the war might have been festooned with medals, Juan Garcia has the very rare distinction of having been recognized as a member of the Order of the British Empire, an MBE, and also a recipient of the Iron Cross for service to Germany. Juan Garcia's name isn't well known because he was a spy. He was more commonly known by his codenames. He was known as Agent Garbo among the Allies, while the Germans codenamed him Alaric, after the legendary King of the Visigoths. In the years between the two world wars, Spain decided to have a war of its own, the Spanish Civil War. Juan Garcia didn't have a great time during this period. He lost family members, and he was himself imprisoned at various times by both sides of the Civil War. The Spanish Civil War was nasty. I don't want to go on to a completely different war to the one I'm supposed to be talking about, but one of the sides of the Spanish Civil War, Franco's nationalists, were not allied with the Nazis, but very friendly. And the Nazis used Spain as a sort of a sandbox to test all of the new weapons and tactics that they'd been developing. So things like Blitzkrieg and their their new planes and everything, they were all tested in the Spanish Civil War. Pablo Picasso's most famous painting, Guernica, is actually a depiction of a Luftwaffe bombing campaign that made a few hundred innocent Spanish civilians in the town of Guernica a lot more on fire than they would have liked to have been. The story goes that Pablo Picasso was living in Paris when the Nazis conquered it. The Gestapo kicked in the door of his apartment, and then they realized who they were dealing with when one of the Nazis saw a framed print of Guernica on the wall, and he said to Picasso, Did you do this? And Picasso responded with, No, you did. So anyway, back to Juan Garcia. It's 1939, and Nazi Germany has just started its dick-swinging tour of Europe. Garcia does not like Nazis. He has been on the bell end of Nazi diplomacy, so he's decided he's going to do something about this. He goes to the British, who were the most powerful of Germany's adversaries at the time, and he offers to become a spy for them. Britain says no. 
He tries three times, and every time the Brits reject him. British intelligence basically tells him, we don't just take anyone off the street, that's the kind of dumb thing that the Germans do, go away. Which gives Garcia an idea. He decides that he's going to go to the Abwehr and become a spy for them, then become a double agent working for the British. Garcia goes and finds his local Abwehr agent in Madrid. How did he find a German spy in Madrid? Well, remember, the Abwehr are really bad at this. There was probably a big sign in a bar saying, Achtung, Abwehr. So Garcia rocks up to this guy and he says, Hey, I want to be a spy for you guys. And the German spy says, How do I know you're not a spy? So Garcia does a Nazi salute and he says, Heil Hitler. And the German spy says, Eh, story checks out. Here's a code book, some invisible ink, ingredients to make more invisible ink, instructions for using invisible ink, and 600 pounds. I need you to go to London and create an underground spy network from the ground up. Garcia says, when do I begin my training? And the German spy says, you just finished it, off you go. And just like that, Juan Garcia is now officially an Abwehr agent, and off he goes. To Lisbon, Portugal. He can't go to London yet, not without having any proof that he's actually a double agent. Unlike the Germans, MI5 are really good at espionage, so they're going to catch him, and when they do, he's going to need more than a smile. So he needs to build up to London. But Garcia has been tasked with making a spy network in London, recruiting spies there for the Nazis. But he's actually in Portugal. How is he going to accomplish this? With copious amounts of bullshit. He goes to the Lisbon Public Library and borrows all of the stuff they had on Britain. History books, tourist guides, the Canterbury Tales, recipes for English muffins, Caesar's Commentary, anything with Britain in it. And he just starts making shit up. He looks up the London Metro timetable and claims that he's making all of these trips on trains. And he reports all of this back to German intelligence. Garcia is literally just documenting a game of Monopoly and sending that back to Berlin. Ah yeah, today I took the train from King's Cross to Liverpool Street, and then I did some reconnaissance on Park Lane, where I won second prize in a beauty contest. And the Germans never caught on. The closest that Garcia came to being caught was when the Germans asked him why he wasn't submitting his expense reports. And the reason Garcia wasn't submitting expense reports was because he didn't know how the British currency system worked. Pounds, shillings, pennies, half pennies. He couldn't send expenses because he didn't know how to add them up in this British nonsense currency. So he just sent back an itemized list and, fortunately for him, nobody knows how British currency works. The German spymasters took a quick look at it and went, what the hell is a halfpenny? Whatever, it looks legit. Carry on. Footnote time. I know my parents listen to this show, and they vaguely remember the transition to decimal currency, and thus have no problems translating insane British currencies. Kudos to them. But also, I know that the younger listeners might not appreciate just how obtuse the pommy system is. So to illustrate... I'll quote the great Sir Terry Pratchett from Good Omens. 
Two farthings equals one halfpenny. Two halfpennies equal one penny. Three pennies is a threepenny bit. Two threepence is a sixpence. Two sixpence is one shilling or bob. Two bob equals a florin. One florin and one sixpence is half a crown. Four half crowns make ten bob. Ten bob is one pound or two hundred and forty pennies. One pound plus one shilling equals one guinea. The British resistant decimal currency for a long time because they thought it was too complicated. End quote and footnote. But what about all the British spies that Garcia is supposed to be recruiting? Well, he just makes that up, too. Uh, yeah, today I recruited an agent from, um, from, uh, Liverpool, who I've codenamed Agent, uh, Agent Window. Yes, Agent Window, that will do. As you know, for operational security, I can't give you any more information than that, but I have an Agent Window in Liverpool. And the Germans would reply with, ah, yes, we understand. Run silent, run deep, keep up the good work. Meanwhile, Garcia is doing his own little bit to hamper the German war effort. He sends false intelligence back to Berlin, like details of a valuable convoy of materials being shipped across the Atlantic. The Germans sent out a wolf pack of U-boats to sink this convoy, but wouldn't you know it, they were always just behind probably on account of the convoy never actually having existed in the first place. After a while of this, MI5 actually begin to take an interest in this supposed spy that's operating in London unchecked. Since Garcia had never actually been to London, he's making all of this up from a copy of Lonely Planet, he's making mistakes. The kind of thing they'd tried to do with Agent Scruffy, but for real. So, to MI5, Garcia looks like a right proper German spy. For instance, he refers to a contact in Glasgow who would, quote, do anything for a litre of wine, end quote. The British, of course, don't use the metric system, so litre is a dead giveaway, and no true Scotsman would ever drink wine. This is exactly the kind of blunder that MI5 were expecting from actual German spies, so they started a manhunt which never turned anything up because all of these spies were completely fictional and the guy sending the reports wasn't even in the country. By now, it's December 1941, and the United States has just entered the war. So Garcia tries his luck joining up with the United States. He rocks up to the US Navy office in Lisbon, and he says what he's been up to. The Navy likes what he's about, and they refer Garcia directly to British intelligence. So his plan ended up working. I mean, he had to take the long way around, but he's finally in. He's working for British intelligence. The Americans just handed him over. And it's shit like this that made Britain not want to trust the Americans with Ultra. Juan Garcia couldn't get near British intelligence for years, but he walked straight into the US system. That's why the British were reluctant to share the Ultra information with the other powers. They didn't trust the Soviets, and rightly so, because the Soviets already had their own spies in place and knew about it anyway. And they didn't trust the Americans, since no American in history has ever been able to keep a secret. I mean, the closest was Liberace. I can't believe Liberace was gay. I mean, women loved him. I didn't see that one coming, no. My favorite demonstration of this was the two countries' spy offices in Delhi, India. The center of Britain's ultra program in the subcontinent was a small wooden shanty in the outskirts of town. The only steps the British took to hide this super secret operation were to put all the code breaking in a back room behind a curtain and make the whole place look vaguely like a soup kitchen. 
In the front room was a single low-ranking soldier who was ordered to just sit there and look bored. Nobody ever gave the place a second look. The American equivalent was the SIGINT Center in Delhi, and it was a massive compound with high concrete walls, razor wire, and armed patrols 24 hours a day. The Germans didn't know what was going on in there, but they knew it had to be big, and that made it a constant target. So back to Juan Garcia. After moonlighting as a German spy for a couple of years, he's finally in the British system. He joins Britain's elite counter-espionage agency, known as the Double Cross System. It was actually XX, the Roman numeral for 20. But gosh, the English love puns, don't they? So Garcia enters Double Cross, where he's given the most British codename ever. Garcia is now known as Agent Bovril. For anyone who may not be familiar with Bovril, imagine someone saying, You know what? I like Vegemite. But wouldn't it be great if you could make it into a tea? Then, realizing that Bovril is a terrible insult to anyone, and in recognition of his great acting skills, Garcia is quickly rebranded as Agent Garbo, after the famed actor Greta Garbo. And it's at this point that Agent Garbo becomes the most prolific spy in the history of spying. He's no longer operating out of a library in Portugal. Now he has the full resources of Allied intelligence behind him. And since he was so good on a shoestring budget, he does miracles with resources behind him. He ramps up his recruitment, inverted commas, of contacts and agents in Britain until he has a spy network of dozens of people. He has spies that report to him. These spies have spies under them. These spies have spies under him. It's spies all the way down. None of them actually exist, but there's at least a hundred of them. There are so many, in fact, and with such detailed backstories, that Berlin sends a message back to Garcia telling him to stop recruiting any more spies because they've got enough. They can't deal with how many they have. What's important here is that all of the actual spies in England had been caught by Double Cross, so there were no legitimate spies left. Because whenever a spy was taken out, the Germans would contact Garcia and get him to find a replacement. Juan Garcia, aka Alaric, aka Garbo, was constantly feeding false intelligence back to the Nazis. But to maintain his cover, he would be given real intelligence too, so that he'd look like a really, really good spy. Like, they'd give out some, some cookies every now and then. But there was always some minor hiccup that stopped this real intelligence from getting there on time, so while he would be leaking real intelligence, the Germans would never be able to act on it. It made him look good, but it never actually damaged the war effort. When the Allies launched their North Africa campaign, Garcia sent the Germans a full report that a massive convoy was headed into the Mediterranean, and he gave accurate numbers of troops and equipment and supplies. It was a completely accurate report of this actual secret invasion. It was given to him by Allied High Command. So if Garcia actually was a German spy, this would have been the jackpot. But because he was sending all of this information by mail to a dead drop in Madrid, wouldn't you know it, the intelligence got there the day after those troops arrived. The Abwehr were duly impressed, though. I mean, this was good intel, it was just late. So they sent 
Garcia a message saying, you know, well done, great job, this information was fantastic. It's just a shame that it didn't get here in time, but you know, not your fault, still, good job. And this is where it gets really good. The Germans think that they've got this top-notch spy in England, but all of his efforts are going to waste because he can only communicate through letters and they can't get this intelligence in time. They need a way to get this information quickly. So Garcia was furnished with a radio so that he could communicate directly and instantly with Berlin. Oh, and because he was communicating military stuff, he was given a functional Enigma machine. Still, this presented some problems for Garcia. Now that he could communicate in real time, he had to invent reasons why his intelligence was late, or why he wasn't reporting on things that he should have been reporting on, things that were quite obvious. In one case, a major fleet was dispatched from the port in Liverpool, and the adverse sent a message saying, hey, we know you've got a guy in Liverpool, how did he miss this? So Garcia sends a message back saying, oh, my, my Liverpool agent was out scouting this fleet, and he was on a seaside hilltop at night in winter, scouting this fleet with binoculars, and he stayed out too long trying to make sure his report was as accurate as possible, and I just found out that he contracted severe pneumonia. He's, he's dead. And the Germans, they find a copy of the local Liverpool newspaper, and there's an obituary for a guy who died of pneumonia on the same spot that this supposed agent had died, and they conclude that the story was legit. And because this man had died in service to the Fatherland, the Fuhrer, and the Thousand Year Reich, the widow of this fallen spy was given a pension from the German government. William Gerbers never existed. His wife never existed. But every month, they got a check from the Reich. In fact, all of Agent Garbo, or Agent Alaric as the Germans knew him, all of his contacts, agents, and spies were paid by the Nazi party. This network of hundreds of people who didn't exist was being funded by the Germans, all of it going directly to the Allied war chest. Some of the fictional agents that Garcia came up with, you, you can tell that he's just riffing. Like it was that last scene in The Usual Suspects where they realized that Verbal was just looking at stuff in the room and making the story up about that. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. One of the agents was a steward with KLM Airlines. There was a guy codenamed Benedict, who was a Venezuelan student in Glasgow. Benedict had a brother who was codenamed Moonbeam, and he was based in Ottawa. Uh, these two guys had a cousin who was operating out of Buffalo in New York. Uh, some of the agents, there was just a description of them, such as the, quote, Indian fanatic and the, quote, Welsh fascist. There was an Agent Donnie, who was the leader of the group known as the World Aryan Order. I'm honestly not making that one up. If the Nazis had bothered to check, they would have found out that there was no World Aryan Order. Well, I mean, they were, I guess, but you get the point. And none of these people existed. They were all fake. Well, except Agent Donnie of the World Aryan Order. He went on to become the 45th President of the United States. But the rest of them were fake. I never heard that one before. Now, the absolute biggest thing that Juan Garcia did during the war was to do with Operation Overlord, the Normandy invasion. Just in case, on the very slight chance that you don't know, 
Operation Overlord was the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. Captain, if your mother saw you do that, she'd be very upset! I thought you were my mother! It was pretty much one of the biggest deals in the war. It was the largest amphibious invasion since the Persian Wars 2000 years before it. It was essential that this plan remained secret. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. And this is where Juan Gabo Garcia makes history. He starts sending the Germans false information. Some of it's true. He's telling them that there's going to be a massive invasion. Only he doesn't say that it's going to be taking place in Normandy. He directs the Germans to the Strait of Dover, which is pretty much as far away from Normandy as you can get and still be in France. And as this builds up more and more, Garcia starts sending more and more messages. He tells them it's clear something major is going to go down. There is a massive military buildup happening, and it is definitely going to happen in Dover. And as far as the Germans are concerned... This guy is the greatest spy in history, so they trust his intelligence. And they send most of their forces to Calais, which is their side of the Strait of Dover, 300 kilometers away from the actual invasion. And then Garcia deploys his pet play of actually sending the correct intelligence, but sending it slightly too late for the Germans to act on it. On the day before the invasion takes place, he sends a message back to Berlin saying that one of his contacts in British High Command, because he's so good he had agents in British High Command, this guy has some super important intelligence to hand over. Game-breaking stuff, war-changing stuff. But because security is so tight right now, this guy can't get away in time. He, He can only get this intelligence out tonight. So Garcia tells his German handlers how crucial this report is going to be, and they need to make sure that somebody is standing by on the radio at 3 a.m. to take the call, because this is going to be huge. The idea was that Garcia was going to reveal the actual invasion plans at this 3 a.m. Zoom hookup. He'd get on the radio in a panic and just be all, holy shit, it was a trick, the invasion is actually in Normandy, you guys need to move right now. And, of course, by the time that the Germans decoded the message and related it to High Command, and then High Command sent orders back, and the guys at Normandy decoded that message, by the time all of that happened, the invasion would have been well and truly underway. Garcia would continue to look like the world's greatest spy by getting this super-secret intelligence, but it wouldn't actually do anything. But remember what we know about German intelligence and their competence. 3am comes around, and Garcia makes the call to his contacts at the Abwehr with this crucial war-changing information. And nobody answers. He calls again. No response. And again. No response. He keeps trying all night. By the time anyone answers the radio, it is 8am. Five hours later. The Allies were willing to risk warning the Germans by about an hour to sell this cover story, and the Germans themselves had quite literally fallen asleep at the switch. In the time it's taken for the Germans to finally pick up the phone, MI5 has had time to reassess the entire plan. The Normandy attack was well underway by now. So they decide to really lean into how good this spy is. So now Garcia is going to give the Germans a fully detailed plan of the Normandy invasion. I mean, why not? It's already done. 
And it's going to look like this guy was so good that he managed to get this super top secret plan, the fulcrum of the entire Allied war effort, and it was the Germans who dropped the ball. So when the Germans finally answer the radio, Garcia is furious. Where have you been? I've been trying to get in contact for five fucking hours. I've had the Allied invasion plan for five hours and you weren't even there. We probably just lost the war because you dickheads couldn't answer the radio. He goes full Gordon Ramsay on them. All three of you are pathetic. You don't care. Go away behind and you haven't got a fucking clue. The German intelligence starts stammering an apology and Garcia keeps going and he keeps ranting. This is an exact quote. He says, I can't accept excuses or negligence. Were it not for my ideals, I would abandon this work. That's what he actually said. He said, you guys are idiots. You're lucky I'm such a super Nazi or I'd walk away right now. I swear to God. And after this, things change a bit. Garcia now essentially reports directly to Hitler, this double agent with an entirely made-up spy network, is so valuable to the Reich that his reports are going straight to the top. What an amazing thing to have. If all warfare is based on deception, this is sitting at number one. Garcia continued in this fashion for quite a while. He was giving fake reports and messing with the German war machine, and it worked. It stymied them. And it was actually relatively late in the war when Juan Garcia, a.k.a. Agent Garbo, a.k.a. Agent Alaric, when he's finally taken off the board. And the way it happens is so fitting, because it's the Germans who do it. They've got this super spy who keeps getting this amazing intelligence. He's fantastic. He's the best thing that's ever happened to them. They don't want to risk him. He's doing all of this super dangerous stuff. He's basically stealing plans directly from Winston Churchill's desk. It's only a matter of time before he gets caught. So the Germans reassign him to light duties. Garcia was directed to scout the effectiveness of the V-1 rockets that were hitting London at the time. The idea was that he was going to go to these locations that were hit and give damage assessments. No more high-profile stuff, you take it easy for the rest of the war. So the actual best agent that the Allies had was just taken out. Not because he was caught, but because he was too good. But don't worry, he gets a fitting send-off. It was arranged that Juan Garcia was going to be arrested in London by the British counterintelligence team. He got picked up in a random sweep, and there was enough circumstantial evidence to hold him and press charges. Garcia goes dark for a few days, and a few days later, he reports back to Berlin. He tells them that he's out, he's okay, counterintelligence found him, but he's managed to talk his way out of the charges, and because he was such a cool super spy, he even had an official apology letter from the Home Secretary for his wrongful arrest. But, because of all this, he's going to have to lie low for a while until the heat dies down. They're watching him now, so he has to go underground. Berlin responds. They understand. They say, you stay safe now, but before you go, we have some news for you. For all of your incredible service to the German war effort, Adolf Hitler himself has awarded you the Iron Cross. Congratulations, Agent Alaric. Godspeed. And that was it for Juan Garcia. After the fall of Berlin, he eventually made his way to Angola, 
where he faked his own death from malaria. He reappeared a couple of years later under a fake name running a small bookstore in Venezuela, because that's what you do after you've ticked off the world's most awesome bucket list. One last story now, a little coda that ties everything together. This is the tale of Operation Mincemeat. In 1943, the body of Major William Martin was discovered floating off the coast of Huevla, Spain. Handcuffed to Martin's wrist was a briefcase. Now, as we know, Spain was a hub for German spies. When Martin's body was found, it was quickly confiscated by Axe's agents. These spies pried open the briefcase, where they found some letters to Martin from his fiancée back in England. There was a photo from said fiancée with a lipstick mark on it. There was also a London bus ticket. There were some keys, some small change, a lighter, some cigarettes. Oh, and there was also a letter between two Allied generals who were discussing detailed points about the upcoming Allied invasion of Greece. This was super top-secret stuff. Major William Martin was a personal courier of this letter because the details within were too risky to send via mail. This was quite the find for the Germans. When the Allies discovered that Major William Martin was MIA, British intelligence frantically tried to find him. They did eventually locate his corpse, and the briefcase was still chained to its wrist, and the contents of the briefcase were still intact. Of course, the Germans had made copies of the letters and then put everything back where they found it. There was no way that the Allies could know that the Germans now had complete knowledge of the super-secret attack that was about to take place in Greece. So Hitler then moved huge numbers of forces to Greece to repel this Allied surprise attack. And a surprise attack did indeed take place. In Sicily. There never was a Major William Martin. Everything about this was fake. The man, the documents, the girlfriend, the attempts to recover everything. The man that the Germans had found was one Glyndor Michael. He was a Welsh vagrant living on the streets of London. He had no home, no money, no known friends or family. He had died after consuming rat poison, whether he committed suicide or whether it was out of desperate hunger that he ate bait left for rats, we'll never know. His body was discovered by a British intelligence team whose job it was to comb the streets of London looking for dead hobos. Because they could find a use for a dead hobo. Glyndor Michael was dressed up in the uniform of a British major. A briefcase was handcuffed to his wrist, and in it were placed the forged documents to sell the ruse, the photo, the bus ticket, the fictional letters from the two generals. His corpse was placed in a submarine, and on a dark night in April 1943, he was thrown off the side and allowed to drift with the current. The reason Spain was chosen was because the head of the Abwehr in Spain was... Someone who had a bit of a history of gilding the lily. The kind of guy who might find some secret documents and maybe take credit for the whole thing. The kind of guy who might embellish the tale while sending those documents directly to the Reichstag. The kind of guy who might unwittingly make the whole story more believable. Less than a month later, messages started flooding into Bletchley Park. The teams there were frantically decoding these top-secret communications between high-ranking Nazis. 
and as the letters turned into words, it suddenly became clear. The plan worked. Operation Mincemeat had worked. The Axis powers were totally fooled. Operation Mincemeat was a complete success, and the war was actually starting to look winnable. The news was passed up the chain at Ultra to Leslie Hollis, their chief of staff. He then sent a telegram to Winston Churchill, who was in America at the time. Because it was sent via telegram on an open channel, the wording had to be somewhat vague. So the telegram said this. Mincemeat swallowed whole, rod, line, and sinker. And now you have enough context for that line to make total sense. I find all of these tales of deception and subterfuge, cryptography, intelligence, and counterintelligence, I find them all fascinating. There's a reason this show is as big as it is. There's so much great stuff that deserves a wider audience, and I've barely scratched the surface. But there is one important detail that I've not yet mentioned that I'll close on. None of this stuff, especially anything to do with Ultra, none of it was declassified until 1974. 29 years after the end of the war. And in that time, not a single person involved in any of this made a peep. That in and of itself is incredible. But why keep it a secret for so long? And why 1974? Because by 1974, computers were just beginning to become a thing. It was becoming more and more possible for someone else to build the kind of machine that decrypted Enigma. Even after the end of the Second World War, Enigma was still widely regarded as unbreakable. Only a handful of people knew the truth. So there was no reason for anyone to stop using it. World War II wasn't the end of war, it was just the last big one. There were plenty of brush fire wars all over the world, especially in the third world countries, places like Africa and South America, everything in the Middle East, the whole Israel thing. And a quick note, third world doesn't mean poor, by the way. Third world just means a country that wasn't allied with the two major powers after World War II, NATO or the Soviet Union. So these countries, they didn't have the infrastructure in place to build their own codes. And why would they? They had Enigma machines, and those were unbreakable. And if you were one of the major powers, and you were faced with a potential conflict with one of these third parties, maybe you'd quietly arrange for a few Enigma machines to be sent their way. Ultra was the edge that won the Allies the Second World War, and it was an edge that they kept until Watergate. Sun Tzu would have been proud. All warfare is based on deception. If you like this kind of thing, you can find me and other projects like this at smirkfromhome.com. Check it out if you like informative and funny. It's where I do my thing, uh, along with others, and I think you're going to like it. Finally, Spotify have put the call out to content creators to ask everyone to register to vote. I'm assuming this is for the Americans out there, unaware that there is a rest of the world. But it is good advice for everyone. I mean, voting is the duty of a responsible citizen. You don't get to complain about anything if you didn't vote against it. As Plato once said, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is you end up being governed by your inferiors. And there are a lot of inferiors running around. 
right now. So, all of you, register to vote and enact some goddamn change, people. Nazis don't happen in a vacuum, it's up to you to stop it.